the happiest place on earth. You know what that's supposed to be true about, right? Disney World, Disneyland. Yeah, that's their theme for their theme park. It's the happiest place on earth. And they want you to believe that so much that you will come and spend thousands of dollars to experience the happiest place on earth. And don't get me wrong, it's a great place. I mean, I've been there twice to Disney World, not Disneyland. That's a little bit too far. But uh, it's a great place. It's fun. You know, it's an experience. However, uh, I can personally guarantee that it is not the happiest place on earth. In fact, even the happy parts and the things that are really enjoyable and great can easily be overshadowed by and eclipsed by the stress of it all. And if you go during the summer by the exhausting heat of it all to the point where you feel like you're going to die and, and it's, it's no longer the happiest place on earth at all. It's quite the opposite. And, uh, in my experience, the last two times, uh, that we were, that we were there both times, we were almost part of a stampede as you exit the park at night. Uh, for some unknown reason, the attendants and, and staff there encourage people to keep pressing forward and to keep pushing and not to stop or give anybody any space, just to keep going to get to the part where the train takes you to the cars. Uh, it's just a maddening experience, especially if you have little kids. At one point, uh, a few years ago, uh, when we were there, I had to actually stop and turn around to the crowd that was all around me and yell loudly, stop, because we were literally being pushed on, and we were starting to actually be afraid, especially for uh, Aiden, who was very, very small at the time. So uh, that promise of being the happiest place on earth, it's just not able to be delivered, no matter how much you love Disney and you love the experience, with the heat and the crowds and the price gouging and and the lines and crying children who uh, quickly forget that they're in the happiest place on earth, it just doesn't last long. And that's true everywhere you look. Uh, commercials and advertisements promise if you use this product, you will be joyful. You'll be happy if you buy a certain type of clothes from a certain store with a certain brand. You will experience joy. If you eat a certain food a certain way, you're going to experience joy. Do this. Do that. Try this. Go here. Live here. Go there. Go to this school. You know, have this group of friends. Have this social media app. And and on and on and on I can go. And we're just constantly inundated with this claim or promise of joy based on circumstance, based on experience, right? That's just everywhere we look. The problem with all of that is that none of it can deliver on that promise. Uh, Happiness is fleeting, and joy certainly is only going to be found in one source. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks in this series, joyful. We want to be joyful people. We want to be people that are full of joy all the time. We all want that. We all search for that. We hunger for that. But as we've been talking about, um, we're only going to find this unending source of joy in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is the source of joy. And so for the believer, we do have the ability to know joy, to experience joy, uh, to share joy. We can be and should be joyful people, but it's only going to be found in our continual surrender to and our continual choice of the joy that the Lord Jesus the Lord Jesus provides. It's only found in him. And he gives us that and empowers that through his spirit, which we have through him. So that's where we've been. And in terms of where we're going to be today, we're going to be in chapter three of Philippians. Uh, That's the letter from Paul that we're going through uh, with this series. And uh, we've said each week that uh, among the different themes and the kind of the subtext of the letter, that the overarching theme and really what he just keeps coming back to is this concept and theme of joy, joyful living as found in Jesus Christ. So Philippians 3 uh, is where we are today. I invite you just to go ahead and get your copy of God's word or bring it up on your device. Philippians 3 verse 1, the apostle Paul says this, In addition, or your translation might say, finally, my brothers, uh, he's not wrapping things up yet. This isn't the concluding statement. Um, It really is what the CSB here renders it, in addition. You know, in other words, or along the same lines. That's what he's really trying to convey uh, from what he has already been been communicating and challenging the believers with he's he's continuing that same mindset in addition my brothers and sisters rejoice that's another form of joy rejoice in the lord to write to you again about this is no trouble for me it's not an inconvenience i'm not getting tired of reminding you of joy he's saying it's no trouble for me and it is a safeguard for you. A couple things to point out here in this first verse. Rejoice, which is what Paul um, says to, to do, and he's reminding us. He's saying, um, I want to tell you again, rejoice, rejoice, be full of joy. Literally, it means to joy greatly. It means to be infused and saturated with life and encouragement. Isn't that a great thought, that we can be infused and saturated by encouragement and real life, you know, vitality, uh, joy. We, we can be people that are full of joy. It's an absolute possibility. And so the Apostle Paul says, I want you to do that. Rejoice, joy greatly. But the key here is that that's not going to be found in circumstances or conditions or in other people even, as meaningful as other relationships that we have in our life might be, none of that is going to be able to hold up under the weight of life. None of those things are going to be able to provide that deep, abiding sense of joy. None of those things are going to, in and of themselves, produce the ability for us to joy greatly. That's going to only and always be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says rejoice in the Lord. That's that's emphasized there. He's the source of all of our of our joy. Uh, and that's something that we need to remember constantly. And I'm saying this to myself as much as to you, church. I, I need that reminder uh, all the time because every single day I forget that. Every single day 
I end up in one way or another, depending on circumstance or condition or people or, or some other thing to fulfill me and to give me joy. Or uh, maybe I don't actively look to those things, but when none of those things provide that joy, it's like I'm surprised. Like, why is this happening? How can this, how can this not uh, be giving me joy? And, and uh, if I'm not careful, then I will let circumstances or events or lack of whatever it is that I'm wanting to have happen, you know, lack of my preferences uh, being fulfilled or met, uh, lack of uh, what I want to have take place, uh, a lack of convenience, whatever, you can fill in the blank. Um, you know, I, it's like I get bent out of shape and I, I can get stressed and I can uh, allow myself to succumb to irritability and, and it's just not good. So I need this reminder just as much, if not more, than, than you. So I'm, I'm in this with you, okay? We need to, as, as the church, as followers of Christ, to constantly remember and to truly believe and apply that remembrance and that belief to every situation and every context of our life that only in Christ can we have and, and know and experience and share true and lasting joy. So rejoice in the Lord. He says to write to you again about this. It's no trouble for me. I don't mind at all to keep reminding you of this and keep saying this over and over again. I'll be a broken record on this. That's fine. And he says the reason that he doesn't mind and the reason it's so important and, and that he keeps mentioning this and bringing this concept of real joy up again and again is because of what he says in the last part of the verse, verse 1. It is a safeguard for you, a safeguard. Um, think of the guardrails, you know, that we, we see around us on certain roads, especially around here in West Virginia. Aren't you thankful for those guardrails and a lot of these roads that we travel on? Um, that's what he's, he's saying here. There's a, there's a safeguard in place. There's guardrails along your journey in life, uh, that you need to acknowledge and be thankful for. And, uh, Something that we don't often think about is that the very joy we're commanded to have, the joy Paul is challenging us with, the joy that is available to us, that in itself is one of those guardrails. It's a safeguard for our heart. It's a safeguard for our mind, and it's really a safeguard for our life. The joy of the Lord isn't just about some emotional high. The joy that the Lord Jesus has and provides is actually a protection for our life. And here's here's what I mean by that. Being full of joy in Jesus will protect us from the joy thieves all around us. I'm going to say that one more time. Being full of joy in Jesus will protect us from the joy thieves all around us. And you know this, there are thieves of joy all around us all the time, every day of our lives. Um, Some of it is internal, you know, it's in in us, in our flesh, uh, in the, the fact of still being in this fallen human state. And we can come up with all sorts of things to rob us of our own joy. A lot of it is external. 
That may be in the form of, of um, unhealthy or toxic relationships. Uh, it may be in the form of, of the media that we're digesting and choosing to saturate our lives with. Uh, it may be circumstances. It may be events. You know, there's, there's certain things that are beyond our control that if we will let them, they will be thieves of joy. Um, there's so many different factors of that. The point is, there are thieves of joy, joy thieves all around our lives. And really, the only antidote to that, the only true guard is going to be found in the joy that Christ alone provides, that we have as followers of Christ totally available to us, constantly available. The joy of the Lord and and choosing to joy in the Lord, that is our protection. That's our our safeguard um, from the joy thieves all around us. It's it's really like um, having all these, these counterfeit sources of joy, Around us. That's another aspect of this. Um, in addition to having joy thieves all around us, there's a million different counterfeit sources of joy. I talked about that just a few minutes ago as we began uh, this message. Uh, and there were so many more that I could have talked about and, and so many more that you can probably think of. Um, things that promise to provide joy and never do. Counterfeit sources of joy. And joy in the Lord protects us from all of those things. Paul zeroes in on some of those things that being truly grounded in the joy of the Lord protects us from. He he gives us some specific examples. And this would have been especially helpful for the original readers of this letter and for their context, um, but it's certainly relevant for us as well today. So look with me at verse 2, and we'll see that uh, the Apostle Paul is zeroing in on examples of what the joy of the Lord or joying in the Lord safeguards us from. He says this in verse 2, Watch out, be, a, be on guard, be alert, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Wow, some, some pretty intense language here, right? What is Paul talking about here? He's zeroing in on a group of people known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers. They were a group of people, uh, Jews, Jewish leaders, Jewish um, scribes, you know, Jewish uh, authorities, experts on the law, who were trying to, at the very least, straddle the fence and in the most severe and most common uh, point that they, they had or their goal was to completely pervert and twist and manipulate the gospel. Uh, they said, you know what, Jesus is great and, and we'll even acknowledge that Jesus was the promised Messiah um, and you do need to look to him, to salvation. Faith in him is, is really important, but... To be fully, really accepted by God, really seen as righteous and declared righteous by him. You really want to be justified? Okay, yeah, Jesus is part of that justification. But to go 100% all the way over to be declared righteous by God, you're going to have to also keep the law. You've got to still have Moses in, in there. You've, you've got to have him elevated up. It's really Jesus and Moses together. That's what really results in total sanctification. And they 
specifically zeroed in on, on one part of the Mosaic law and the requirements of that, which was circumcision, the rite of circumcision, the thing that way back even with Abraham said, this is what's going to distinguish the people of God, the, the chosen people of God, the nation of God from everyone else. This is what's going to set you apart. This is a really important thing, and it was. It was a very important part of the Old Covenant. But the Judaizers were saying, even though Jesus clearly said, I am fulfilling the law, I've, I've come to establish a new covenant, a whole new way of living in relationship with God that's not dependent on the law, it's not dependent on any one specific act, like circumcision, I'm fulfilling all that. Uh, even though he said that, and even though Peter and Paul and many others who were Jews said, good news, you're free from the law. It's not about the law. You don't have to fulfill the law to be declared righteous with God or by God because Jesus fulfilled it for you. Even though all that had been clearly established and communicated, these Judaizers were saying, especially to the Gentile believers, the non-Jewish Christians, hey, whoa, 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 before you celebrate all your freedom, you need to understand Paul's leaving something out here. He's not telling you the whole story. You need to still be circumcised. You still need to hold up Moses. And so Paul is saying, no, 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 stop. That's not true. Don't listen to that. So he's saying, watch out for, and, and he uses a very profound, very um, biting thing to describe them. He says, watch out for those dogs. And he's not talking about like a domestic, friendly, lovable pet kind of dog. This is referencing the mangy, uh, wild, unsafe, wild packs of dogs that would just roam the areas that anybody would want to stay away from. He's saying, that's what these people are like. Uh, that's the threat that they are are representing to your faith and to your your understanding of the gospel and you're experiencing the freedom and the power of that. They are are like wild dogs that will attack your joy. Don't let them do that. And there's another thing about this. Uh, Paul was always so clever with his words, and you may already know this. You may already be aware um, that the Jewish people as a whole viewed the Gentiles, non-Jews, in such a derogatory way that they, just about all the time, referred to Gentiles as, yep, you guessed it, dogs. And again, that's not like, oh, good dog, friendly dog that I want to have crawl up on my lap. No, as in the wild, roaming, ravaging, dangerous pack dogs. Uh, so that's what they would refer to the Gentiles like uh, all the time they did that. So Paul is turning that around. He's, he's using a play on words and he's saying the very same people who make a habit of referring to you Gentiles this way, they're the ones that are the dogs. Watch out for them. Have nothing to do with them. Avoid them. Watch out for the evil workers, he goes on. He said, and it's the same group of people. He's still talking about the Judaizers. He's saying what they are working, what they are doing is evil. It's not good. It's not for your benefit. So watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's talking about circumcision, that physical 
act that they are promoting and saying is absolutely essential even for the believer in Christ. Then he he says this in verse 3, continuing with the same line of thought that he's he's telling the Philippian believers to watch out for, and he's providing uh, a very stark contrast to what the Judaizers are promoting and holding up as absolutely essential. He just got done saying, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Watch out for those who are, are pursuing and promoting circumcision as, as so vital. And he says this, for we, we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. He's saying, circumcision is about so much more than what they are saying and what they are making it out to be. It's not about the physical act. He says, we, you and me, we are the circumcision. You want to know the type of circumcision that God actually accepts and views as necessary? It's those who worship in truth by the the Spirit of God, the ones who put confidence in, dependence on, and trust in Jesus Christ and don't put confidence in the flesh. He spoke on that in even a little bit more detail in um, Romans, and I just want to share that with you so that you really grasp what Paul is trying to convey and the importance of it, the impact of it. Uh, In Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul says this, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew, chosen person of God, that's what he's saying, uh, by by focusing in on on that uh, that word or that identification, Jew, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter, not the law. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So in in that passage in Romans, what he's trying to express is. Everybody needs to understand to be declared righteous, to be justified in the sight of God and by God, and to truly be set apart unto him, it's not about your nationality. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about tracing your family lines back to a significant person, even as as, uh, significant and important as Abraham was for the Jewish nation, the father of the Jewish nation, and as important as someone like Moses was, and as as important and necessary as the law was for the time that it was absolutely so necessary, Paul is trying to get his readers and, and the early church and the church today to understand that being viewed by God and declared by him as acceptable and righteous and justified and redeemed and loved, all of that goes way, way, way beyond who you are or who your, your lineage is. It goes beyond any certain exercise or act. It's all about the heart of a person and specifically who has your heart. And so Paul is saying in Romans, as well as here, he's saying, no, no, being accepted in God's sight, 
being chosen by God. It's all about what the Spirit has done in a life, the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, through faith and trust in him alone. He's the only one that makes you righteous. He's the only one that can make you accepted, adopted, and loved by God the Father. It's all about him. And so uh, being uh, that, that special chosen person now, it's not about uh, being literally a Jew. You, you, can, you can now be considered what, what God considered a Jew to be now by coming to Christ, regardless of your actual uh, ethnicity. And, and it's such a freeing, beautiful thing. And so circumcision, the actual literal physical act, really has no, no, uh, no bearance at all anymore. There, there's, no, there's no impact uh, in that. It's powerless. There's nothing sacred about circumcision. Uh, it's all about circumcising the heart, setting the heart apart. Um, declaring that as being devoted exclusively to God uh, by the power of the Spirit. So very important things for uh, the Philippian believers to hear and to be reminded of, but it's also important for us to hear that today because there are still so many things coming at us all the time that say, if you do this, you're really going to be close to God. If you do a certain thing and, and you have this list a mile long of all the things not to do, that's how to really be holy. That's how to show you're really a Christian. So, you know, there's these messages that come at us right here and now in 2020 that say to really be sanctified, set apart unto God and holy and to really be fully accepted by him and to know you're really loved, to be that, you know, super Christian, do this, don't do that, and on and on it goes. And we need to remember that it's not that righteous living isn't important, because it is. It's not that sin in all forms should be totally rejected, because it should be. It's not that we shouldn't mortify, put to death the flesh and the, the deeds and desires of the flesh. Absolutely we should. But our sanctification, our being set apart unto God by God, our being declared righteous, our being justified, has nothing to do with what we do or with what we don't do. It all comes down to, it's all anchored to, and it's all maintained by what Jesus did and who he is and by the indwelling power and work of the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that. It's very important. So Paul says, uh, we are the circumcision the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. And, and then he, he uh, does what Paul typically does. He said, okay, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here. Let's say that it is about providing or finding confidence in the flesh and something you can do. Let's, let's say that um, merit before God and righteous standing with him is about works of the flesh and, and some action on your part. Um, he said, if, if that's true, then you should look at me and I should be good to go just based on my, my humanity and my human achievements. Verse 4, uh, after he just got done saying, we, we don't put confidence in the flesh, that's what actually makes us the true spiritual circumcision. And he says this, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. 
If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I, I have reasons for that. Uh, he says, I have more. Uh, if anybody else thinks that they can glory or boast in the, in the flesh and what they have achieved and what they've done, look to me. I've got way more reasons than anybody else for depending on their works to make them right before God. Verse 5, he says this. This is kind of his pedigree. This is his uh, list of, of fleshly uh, uh, accomplishments. You know, this is his examples of how he could, uh, above anybody, have confidence in what he did, if it were up to that. Thankfully, it's not. He says this, verse 5, uh, about himself, circumcised the eighth day, which is what every good Jewish person was supposed to uh, have done, uh, every, every Jewish male, uh, circumcised the eighth day, that was part of the law, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the royal tribe. That's where uh, the first king of Israel came from, Saul, the one who stood head and shoulders above all the rest, the one that even Samuel said, oh, uh, this guy, he, man, he's, he's something special. Look at him. Um, you know, he, he looked like what people thought of as a king. Saul, the first king of, is, of Israel. So a very profound historical tribe. That's where Paul came from. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee. So, you know, expert, master of the law. Regarding zeal or passion, persecuting the church. Remember, that's what he did, almost to the point of extinction. And he thought he was doing it all for God. You know, I'm doing God a favor. I'm wiping out this sect this way. Regarding zeal persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. So he's saying as far as keeping the law, I did it blamelessly. You know, I was pretty much perfect in keeping the law as much as anybody could be. But then he says this in verse 7. And I just love the transition. This is so important to hear and to think about, to get. But everything that was a gain to me, all those human accomplishments, all that pedigree, everything that was a gain to me, Paul says, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. In other words, all that stuff, I've come to the point where I realize it meant nothing. It meant nothing. It's just... Let me just write it off as a loss. There was no value in it. Nothing gained by it. And then he says this, verse 8. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. Some of your translations might say as rubbish, uh, but the, the word dung here, that's literally what he was saying. I, I consider, this to, consider this to be as, as um, repulsive and useless as manure. It's just, it's dung. It's, it's beyond lacking value. It's actually disgusting. All other things in life, any, all these other things that I might pursue... I actually consider so worthless as to consider them dung, so that I may gain Christ. So what, what Paul is, is trying to express here, and what I uh, want to challenge you to really give thought to, 
is that performance-driven devotion will never produce joy. Never. Performance-driven devotion will never produce joy. It just won't. It's incapable of it. We're not going to find the joy that we all want. We're not going to be able to be joyful people uh, if we build up our devotion to Christ based on our performance, or if we're depending on our performance in our devotion to produce joy in our lives. And that's so important to understand and to keep in mind and even to apply, because I feel that when we have a lack of joy in our devotion and in our service to Jesus, which I know I've had, from time to time, and I think it would be true of you as well. I think we can all identify with that, what that feels like, and it's not a good feeling. You know, we, what it feels like to just be going through the motions and, and for our Christian life and our, even our devotion to the Lord Jesus and our service to Him to really end up feeling like and being like just this kind of empty ritual, mindless motion. You know, I think we've all been there at certain points. And I think in those times, when we have a lack of joy in our devotion to Christ and in our service to him, I think it's because there's a very good chance in those moments and in that, that season of life where that's going to be true of us, that it's because we have allowed ourselves to be more devoted to our devotion than we are actually to Jesus. You know, we can get so caught up in the doing of what it means to be a devoted follower of Christ, that you know, we put all of our focus on that and we wrap up all of our, our identity in what we are doing rather than wrapping up all of our identity in, in Jesus himself. Uh, and when that happens, when we keep our, our, our eyes and our focus on the act rather than on the person the act is supposed to be for, uh, we're going to lose joy very quickly. And so um, if we're not careful, we can absolutely become devoted to our devotion rather than uh, taking our devotion and enjoy um, just totally 100% focusing on, on Jesus and letting the joy we find in him and from him fuel our devotion. That's how it should be. That's how it's intended. And when we get that perspective off, um, man, joy just leaves rapidly. So it's really important to understand that uh, performance-driven devotion is never going to produce joy. Only when we realize that our relationship with Christ and our standing with the Father is not based on our performance or our, our lack of performance. And it's not based on our merit or our lack of personal merit. Everything about what it means to be a Christian, a child of God, everything about that is, is anchored to exclusively Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf. So important to remember and understand. And that's what Paul is trying to drive home here. Uh, That's why he said, all those things, all those accomplishments, all that list of what I did before Christ or apart from him, outside of him, I I just see it as having no benefit, no value, and actually repulsive at this point. And I consider everything a loss so that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own from the law. I don't have a righteousness of my own from the law. Why? Because the law can't provide that. There is no righteousness in or from the law. It doesn't produce that. I certainly don't have it in myself. He says, I'm found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, from God the Father, the gift of righteousness from the Father that is based on faith in and through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying in that, uh, in this this last verse that we're going to look at today, in verse 9, is that we are not made righteous by ritual or performance. That's not what makes us righteous. Uh, It's not going to make anybody righteous. No matter how sincere uh, the person might be, no matter how sacred that ritual might be, we're not made righteous by ritual or performance No, we're made righteous by Jesus alone. And that's a a glorious, freeing, powerful, rich, rich thought and reality. It makes sense then, doesn't it, for our greatest joy uh, to be found in Jesus. I mean, if, if he is the one that makes us righteous... He's the one that provides righteousness. It's not going to be found in any other thing, no system, you know, no, no ritual, no person. It's all going to be found in him. And knowing that should produce and result in joy, then it makes sense that we keep pursuing him, right? That we, like Paul, say, I'm going to abandon every other thing um, that I was pursuing. I'm going to keep coming back to the reality that not only is righteousness found in Jesus alone, but the joy that that righteousness results in is found only in Jesus. So I'm going to keep pursuing him. I'm going to keep looking to him. I'm going to keep reaching toward him, knowing that only as, as I do that will I know and experience real, lasting joy. That's the only thing that's going to make me a joyful person. And we need to have that mindset, church. We need to remember and believe and live out the fact that um, our greatest joy is going to be found in Jesus. And it's not going to be found in circumstances lining up in a certain way that we want them to. It's not going to be found in, in our preferences always being carried out. It's not going to be found in... Um, in in these events going the way we want them to be and build them up in our mind and heart. It's it's not going to be found in a certain type of gathering. Uh, It's not going to be found in a specific location. Live here and you'll be full of joy. It's just not going to work that way. And we need to keep coming back to that truth and living that out, especially um, in the, the days in which we're living where there are, even more than at other times, thieves of joy in and around our lives all the time. So that's what I want to leave you with. And especially as we look this week towards Thanksgiving and setting aside that day to give thanks and to think about all that we have to be thankful for, all the joy that is ours, just remember um, that it's always only found in Jesus Christ and in what he has done for us and what he makes constantly available to us. Let's remember that. Let's pray for one another to to remember that and to live that out. Let's live that out well. Thanks.